0: National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues that affect American national security. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cyber Security Summit, which is meeting this year from October 24th to the 26th at the Doubletree Hotel in Bloomington, Minnesota. And now your host, John Olson.
1: Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday and you joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about American national security. We're continuing our exploration of the U.S. intelligence community today. We spent a number of shows covering different agencies in the U.S. intelligence community, learning how they are organized, what missions they carry out in support of American national security, and how they are aligned inside the U.S. intelligence community. Today, we're going straight to the top inside the Department of Defense. We're going to learn how DOD organizes intelligence, establishes policy for intelligence, and how operations are supported by intelligence professionals. The Honorable Ronald Moultrie was sworn in as Under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security on June 1st, of 2021. In this role, he's the principal advisor to the Secretary of Defense on intelligence, counterintelligence, and security matters. Mr. Moultrie also exercises authority, direction, and control. On behalf of the Secretary of Defense, over all intelligence and security organizations within the Department of Defense, as well as the intelligence components of the combatant commands and military services. He is also dual-hatted as the Director of Defense Intelligence in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and reports to the DNI in this capacity. Prior to becoming Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security, Mr. Moultrie's 36-plus-year career included service in senior leadership positions throughout the Department of Defense and the National Intelligence Community. He retired from the DOD in 2015 as NSA's Director of Operations. Mr. Moultrie holds a Master of Science degree in Strategic Intelligence from the National Intelligence University, a Bachelor of Arts degree magna cum laude in Business Management from the University of Maryland, a Russian language degree from the Hart Defense Language Institute at Monterey, and he completed senior ex- executive studies at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Secretary Ronald Moultrie, welcome to National Security This Week.
2: John, good morning to you, and thanks for having me on today. It's an honor to be here with you.
1: Uh, I, I, we, you and I are on Zoom this morning. I see that you're sitting in the uh, Office of the Secretary of Defense, the public affairs spaces. Is that right, the, the flag in the Pentagon uh, displayed behind you?
2: Yes, I am, sir. Sitting here where a number of broadcasts have taken place over the decades from uh, very prominent individuals. So it's great to be in this this really uh, fantastic space and great to be on talking to you today.
1: And and you and I were on just for a couple of minutes before we came on the air. I know you've already had a, a very busy morning this morning out in Washington, D.C. So thank you for taking time from your schedule to to join us this morning. Uh, sir, at the beginning of the show, I, I generally like to ask my guests a little bit about their background. Uh, what I covered in your introduction, frankly, barely scratched the surface of all you've done throughout your intelligence career. Uh, would you please tell us, tell our listeners what it was that drew you to a career of service to the United States in this field of national security?
2: Yeah, John. Well, first and foremost, um, let me thank you for serving, too, because I know that you spent time in and probably some of the same things that um, that drew you in, or some of the same things that drew me in. There, there is no one singular thing that I could point to to say that this is the reason that I decided to come into um, the government and to uh, serve the country. I would say it was a number of things. First and foremost, I had this um, I had this sense that uh, I wanted to not just see the world you know people talk a lot about seeing the world but i wanted to engage with the world i actually wanted to interact with people in different places in different nations of different cultures of different languages and that drew me to um to the u.s military because i knew it had not offered an opportunity to be able to do so the other reason um but it didn't drive me in that direction as much as some might think was um I have a, a very long and proud family tradition of serving in the military, and it's it's something I I don't talk about as much as I should, but since I'm on with uh, you know your, your great listeners uh, today, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about it. Um, my father um, served in the military for 30 years. Uh, he joined in 1946 and served until 1976, so he spent a long time then. He served in uh, both the uh, Korean and Vietnam Wars. He was... Um, uh, a Purple Heart winner in Korea, and then went on to uh, the Vietnam in a very distinguished career as a Sergeant Major in the U.S. Army. My mom's brother uh, also served in Vietnam. Uh, unfortunately, um, you know, he made the ultimate sacrifice for our country. Uh, I also had a number of other relatives who served. My wife served uh, and also was a Russian linguist just as I was. That's actually how I met my wife some 36, 37 years ago. Um, but my roots go back even farther than that. Um, I have relatives who served in the Civil War, and there's actually a Civil War memorial here in Washington, D.C. that has um, the names of, um, of my relatives on there. On my father's side, Benjamin Moultrie, who actually served, and that's you know that's actually on the wall. It's documented. I can trace that all the way down <laughs> through uh, Benjamin Moultrie, through my great, through my grandfather, through my father, and and to me. So for um, you know, so for a 60 years, um, there have been Moultrie's who have been serving, and um, and I feel that there's um, there's a, a really strong tradition and heritage and a sense of pride that you get from serving. So that's part of what drew me in, and and as I said, just the opportunity to uh, to get back to our nation, I think that's important. I think it's something that we should all aspire to do.
1: Yeah, you you, you uh, bring up a great point. One of the things I've discovered over the last couple of years doing this show is that uh, what we're seeing traditionally or typically right now is that people who come from a family that has served typically are the ones who step into service. I think we need to probably find a way to branch out and get more members of our society to think about serving uh, the country in some way, shape, or form, not necessarily in the military, but in some sort of service. I think that, that benefits our society as a whole. Uh, Mr. Secretary, we have a lot to cover today. Uh, I want to make sure I, I tap into your expertise. Uh, let's let's get into our core topic, if we could, uh, intellig- intelligence across the Department of Defense. I mentioned in the introduction you exercise authority over all intelligence, counterintelligence, and security organizations inside DOD. Can you please give our listeners a sense of the scale of the intelligence enterprise inside DOD?
2: Yeah, John, that's uh, that's a great question. So I, I like to think of it as um, an intelligence organization and a security organization, because they go hand in hand. I think as we talk about it today, you'll hear more and uh, and, and get a, uh, I hope, a, a a better understanding of how they, they work together. So I really execute that authority direction and control over the defense intelligence and security enterprise, if you will, and it's a massive organization. What we're, what we're really entrusted with doing is understanding potential threats to uh, our defense intelligence uh, or our defense, the uh, Department of Defense enterprise, if you will. And then we have to uh, serve as that first line of defense. And by that is you know, providing information of how we might protect ourselves, how we might mount a defense against those threats and vulnerabilities that we, uh, that we have out there. Number of people um, and a number of skills are required to do this today. I think we you know the rough count is some hundred and fifteen hundred one hundred and sixteen thousand individuals are a part of this, and that includes a number of agencies. I think you have had a number of people on already on t- on your show who have been a part of what we call this Defense intelligence enterprise, but it's you know five agencies and organizations, if you will. One hundred and fifteen, sixteen thousand people and somewhere in the uh, the neighborhood of twenty four billion dollars that is spent just on defense intelligence um, and security. So massive. We're also global in nature. So it's not that we just like we have people here. We have people who are with partners and allies around the world. We have people who are serving in embassies and other establishments. Uh, And we have people who are serving in hostile areas and and other places. So it's a global organization. It's very much um, uh, aided and assisted by key partners and allies around the world. And it's supported tremendously by our Congress. And I I would be remiss if I didn't thank our legislatures and um, overseers for the support that they give to our enterprise.
1: So you exercise the sort of policy uh, executive control over intelligence, counterintelligence, and security in in DOD. Uh, The major agencies, as you mentioned, I've had uh, Lieutenant General Scott Barrier on. Uh, He was the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, and later this month we'll have uh, Vice Admiral Trey Whitworth on, and he's the director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. What what other agencies uh, fall under DOD as far as the intelligence community goes?
2: Yeah, so there are five uh, specific agencies and organizations that I have um, this purview over, if you will. So as you stated, the, it's the Defense Intelligence um, Agency, and General Barrier is the, uh, the commander of that, um, or director of that organization. They're responsible for human or human intelligence. You have the National G uh, Spatial Agency, and Vice Admiral Trey Whitworth is the, um, the director of that organization. They're responsible for geo right? So human is all those things that a human can collect. geo are all these things that just help us understand what's in our environment. What are we getting from sensors and sensory information in our environment, whether it's from the space domain or the air domain or land domain or, or the sea domain? So trade-wipworth are responsible for that. We have the National Reconnaissance Offices, uh, which is the NRO. They're responsible for imagery intelligence, but they also collect other intelligence from space. Uh, Dr. Chris Galise is the director of that organization, wonderful individual, spent a lot of time at NASA. Uh, The fourth is the National Security Agency, and I believe you had Mr. John Darby on from that organization. They're responsible for SIGINT, or signals intelligence, but also cyber. And uh, the mysticism around cyber, it's really another name for SIGINT, if you will. It's just information that's passed electronically. And NSA has been in the news a lot. They're a great organization. And then the fifth organization is the defense counterintelligence and security agency dcsa Uh, its director is mr bill leetzal they're responsible for enabling us to maintain cognizance over our personnel so they're responsible for personnel security personal administration but they're also responsible for ensuring that our facilities are secure that our partnerships and relationships are secure from foreign ownership and control And they do a a tremendous job in helping us um, ensure we have administrative security in place for the 3.6 million people who are in the Department of Defense.
1: And I do want to follow up on that a little bit later on, uh, on that counterintelligence and security side of things. But if we could continue on just a couple more minutes on uh, the defense intelligence enterprise. Uh, You also exercise uh, some executive authority over the services and the creation of the man-train-equip functions for the military services as they bring young people into the service, train them, and then send them out to support the combatant commanders. Could you talk a little bit about that as well?
2: Sure, sure, absolutely. We have, um, if you could think about Intel operating on two tiers or two levels, if you will, there's a national level that we have that uh, really is responsible for providing Intel to the President of the United States, to policymakers, to our key leaders, to our military commanders, and uh, to others who are entrusted with, um, with making policy decisions on, uh, on things that we do around the world on a daily basis, if you will. But then there are the tactical, uh, on the second tier, there's a tactical work that we do to ensure that our services, so this is the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, uh, each have the intelligence that they need to go out and execute their missions. So think of the services as these independent elements that work jointly um, when necessary, but they also have their independent uh, missions, if you will. So each has an intelligence um, entity to it. Uh, And if you just take the first letter of that service and put a two behind it, (laughs) it, you have Air Force um, would be an A2. So Air Force 2 is a 2 is the intelligence code, if you will, for the military. The Army uh, has had G2s. And if you watch movies like Patton and other things, you'll hear George C. Scott talking about his G2. Uh, The Navy is an N2. And so the services are responsible for training, equipping and preparing its Intel services to be able to conduct their mission. They also are preparing those individuals to support the national mission when necessary and the joint mission when necessary. So we work very closely with the services. Uh, They're all fantastic individuals, all highly trained. Um, And what we do with them is we ensure that we have the right policies in place to to support their intelligence build out, uh, if you will. We also ensure that they have the right budgets uh, and the right focus to um, pay for the things that they need in terms of the systems that they'll need to acquire, the requirements that they need to, uh, to satisfy, to ensure that we're meeting our national and tactical requirements, and just ensuring that we are trying to recruit um, the individuals that we need to support our work. And that's, a, uh, that's an important task. And I, I think the services do that very,
1: very well. And then the last component part that I'd like to ask you about, Mr. Secretary, is uh, the combatant commands, uh, mm-hmm. sort of where the rubber meets the road. We bring uh, people into the military through the services, through those Title Ten functions. Uh, we train them up in the intelligence and counterintelligence world, and then we send them out, deploy them forward to the combatant commands to serve the national security interests of America. Could you talk a little bit about the, the support that you provide to the combatant commanders?
2: Sure. We're uh, we're very much integrated into uh, each of the uh, the combatant commands. So think about combatant commands as having either geographic um, presence or functional responsibilities that cut across the globe, if you will. So we have a combatant command for um, uh, Indo-PACOM, which is the Pacific. We have one that is focused on the Middle East, CENTCOM. We have one that's focused on um, south america uh Southcom, and, and then you know they, they go around the world if you will. i won't go into all of them we also have functional commands uh, like what used what's today called stratcom uh it's gone through a number of cha- name changes over the years if you will but they're responsible for our our nuclear forces the triad if you will our missiles and our submarines and our our bomber aircraft um, and then other commands like special operations command and that's uh been highlighted now today uh since the uh the war on terrorism and a lot of tv shows talk about you know the work that we do of our joint special operations command well each one of those organizations have to have embedded intel professionals to go out and uh, and do their jobs so what we try to do is understand the unique mission of each command the geography of that command understand the requirements that that commander uh has wh- wh- he or she might have we try to understand the uh, the systems that they'll need to be able to support their command. We'll also do that for the, the functional commands. How do we understand exactly what's gonna be needed to fight extremism, if you will? How do we understand what's gonna be needed to fight uh, malign influence, people getting online and, and trying to do things nefariously? And what we try to do is provide the skills that they need provide the training that they need and provide the um, the trade craft or tools that they'll need to be able to do their jobs. And so they'll link into us. We link into them. We understand their requirements. We're providing people. We make sure we provide the oversight uh, because all of our operations have to be overseen and they have to comply with law. And so we provide that oversight, that guidance and compliance, and we allow them to execute. Our job is not to to execute the mission for them, but it's to ensure that they have everything that they need to go out to execute that mission. So we spend a lot of time doing that, and I think we do it quite well, and there's a lot of success stories that, you know, you hear about, but there are uh, probably many, many more that you'll never hear about, and that's because those individuals are doing their jobs. Yeah.
1: Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is the Honorable Mr. Ronald Moultrie, who serves as the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security. Our show is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. To learn more, visit www.cybersecuritysummit.org. So in my introduction, Mr. Secretary, I also mentioned that you're dual-hatted as the Director of Defense Intelligence inside the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And as I mentioned earlier, I recently had Lieutenant General Scott Barrier, the Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, on our show. You mentioned DIA in your discussions just a few minutes ago. Those two terms, Director of Defense Intelligence Agency and Director of Defense Intelligence, they sound very similar, but they are in fact very, very different roles. Uh, Could you please explain what your role is inside the office of the Director of National Intelligence and how DOD Intel aligns with the rest of the intelligence community?
2: Sure. And if you'll just give me uh, 30 seconds, I'll explain the ODNI, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. So the Office of the Director of National Intelligence was set up right after 9-11. And it was set up to ensure that we had a better way of coordinating intelligence functions and, and, and providing knowledge of what we were doing across all the intelligence entities and organizations that are a part of the U.S. government. So today I think there's some 18 organizations that comprise the ODNI or the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. We have, as as we talked about, John, the five intelligence entities that um, that are members of defense intelligence. All of those organizations are represented in some way or have direct membership on the intelligence community. And that's DIA, NSA, NRO, NGA, DCSA, we represent them on the intelligence community those four plus one entities are um what we call the defense intelligence enterprise as a director of defense intelligence my role is to give advice and to give insight and to coordinate and collaborate with the director of national intelligence on things that we need to do together so with that hat I am representing those four agencies who also have individual voices, but I provide that big voice for the Secretary of Defense to say, here's where the Secretary um, believes we should go on an issue, or here's the things that we think we should do on a particular issue. And so that's the role I wear as a Director of Defense Intelligence. I do not do it independently. I do it in close collaboration and coordination with the other entities that are a part of the Defense Intelligence Enterprise. And it works quite well. I also um, serve as an interface uh, between the secretary and the DNI on occasions. And on many occasions, uh, I serve as a facilitator when they come together to, uh, to talk. Uh, there are many times when I'll be in a room with both of them to talk about key issues,
1: and that happens on a regular basis. One of the things I think most people don't quite understand about how the U.S. intelligence community is organized is that uh... – uh, the Director of National Intelligence is not actually a Secretary, a Cabinet Secretary position. A- and all but one of the intelligence agencies that are members of the U.S. intelligence community fall under a Secretary of a Cabinet uh, Department. Uh, DOD happens to be one of the largest, uh, and you, you are the leader of a, a, a significant amount of uh, executive control over a significant amount of the intelligence community inside DOD. Uh, but CIA is the only one that doesn't actually report to anybody. they sort of out there uh, on their own, sort of a unique position. They, they report directly to the President of the United States, which is very different than the rest of the, the community. Uh, so, Mr. Secretary, it was only in recent years that your position evolved to include the security component. Uh, from, from your vantage point, how challenging is it to protect America's defense secrets across the entire DOD establishment? And, and what are you doing in these areas?
2: Yeah, that's uh, that's another um, great question. That's a daunting question. So <laughs> if you can imagine trying to protect 3.6 million people in an organization who are scattered uh, around the nation, who are, are basically posted around the globe, and think about all the places where they work, think about all of the uh, places where they live, think about all the systems that they are attached to. Um, and this, think about all of the policies that one has to have in place to ensure you, um, that you're doing that in a coordinated fashion, um, it is a daunting task, if you will. But we, um, we were asked to, uh, to wear that, uh, that responsibility, um, if you will, for defense security um, in the, over the last three years, if you will. My predecessor, uh, Vice Admiral Kernan, uh secretary kernan um actually chartered this into um into establishment if you will what we do in that area is we try to as we do with the intelligence side of the house we try to establish those policies that we will need to ensure that everybody is complying uh in what i would call as much of a standard way as possible so if all the the different we talked about combatant commanders that you have these are four star admirals and generals who are leading their leading their vast geographic areas or functional areas, we want to make sure that they're putting the same policies in place. We want to make sure that there's some standardization so there is not inequitable treatment of individuals. We want to make sure access policies for our bases are the same. We want to make sure that we have the right standards for Uh, operating on our systems, if you will. And we want to make sure that we have the right standards for people entering our facilities, whether it be going into a compartmented area where you do classified work or an open area where people can come in. So our goal, working with um, other undersecretaries and policy and personnel and readiness, is to ensure that we have these these policies in place to ensure that we have these regulations in place and ensure that we have the guidance in place where necessary. The one other thing I, I should add because I think it's really important John because I think um, there are some things that you see on television that are uh, that are quite accurate but uh, you don't see the uh, the legwork part of those we have the service um, investigatory elements if you will, who do great work. So you've heard of NCIS? Right. There's absolutely. a, a great, absolutely a great, <laughs> great television show on NCIS. Um, the director of NCIS is a very good friend of mine. Um, he is uh, an individual who's responsible for ensuring that we have the right policies, the right security um, procedures in place for the Navy and the Marine Corps. Well, each of the services have their own too. So the Air Force has the Office of Special Investigations, Air Force OSI. They do the same thing as NCIS. They're just not on TV yet. Hopefully one day they'll have their own <laughs> TV show. And then we have the Army that has a Criminal Investigative Division um, that also does that for uh, the Army. And so those three, we work together very closely. I work with those uh, those three individuals and in their, uh, their uh, parent services to ensure that we're, we're, we're trying as much as possible to have standard policies, standards procedures, that we understand the threats that are out there. There are people who are always coming after us, and I think you understand that. I think your readers and listeners understand that. There are individuals who um, who are nation states and nefarious actors who are trying to get into our systems. We have to protect those systems every day. And there are individuals who, unfortunately, are trying to get onto our bases and installations and get after um things that we have still that could be used to um, be used for purposes other than what we would want them to be used for. So all that falls under us to help set those policies to uh, to ensure that we're protecting our people, our installations and
1: our bases. So you, you covered a lot of the sort of the physical security side of things. But that counterintelligence role is also really important, I know, from uh, having spoken with uh uh, Jill Sanborn, just last week, uh, the former executive uh, assistant director of the FBI uh, running the national security branch, that the FBI is opening a new counter, a new espionage case against uh, Chinese intelligence officers about every 12 hours. So that's an unbelievable pace. Uh, the counterintelligence mission that you also are responsible for for DOD, that must be a, a pretty heavy lift, I have to think, in this current time.
2: Yeah, it's, it's one of the primary areas that uh, we see as a growing area. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, espionage is alive and well, and, and uh, it's something that we live with every day. As you mentioned, the bureau is, uh, you know, at the forefront, of defending our, um, you know, our our nation from um, counterintelligence threats. But we also have threats that um, that go against us when we're operating overseas. We also have threats that go against us here. They're all trying to get after, uh, you know, what makes us a great nation, what makes us a, um, you know, a great power, if you will. And um, what we have to do is to ensure that, uh, that we defend against those efforts to get into our systems, those efforts to, uh, to recruit our people. And, and I, I think that's sometimes misunderstood, that there's a lot of effort being made to not only steal secrets from us uh, off systems or to, um, to break into uh, areas and to get things, but also to do things from an insider threat perspective. Where uh, you'll have uh, agents of uh, foreign powers, sometimes just individuals of foreign nations, who are here in the United States, operating probably in every state, uh, attempting to collect information on not only us and in the United States Defense Department, but also on the private sector, on companies and businesses that do business with us, because we really do—you uh, know—most of our work is done through the private sector. We don't—we're not there building our own. Um, aircraft or our own submarines or our own, uh, uh, platforms, naval platforms, if you will, that's all being done with the help and the assistance of our, um, defense in- industrial base in the private sector. And so they're under counterintelligence threat and, uh, and we try our best to do that. And you mentioned earlier, the, um, the fact that you go back to defense counterintelligence and security, uh, agency, that's one of the key roles that they have is to help us understand that. And we can unpack that as much as you want to, but yes, um, CI or counterintelligence is a major area, and we do our best every day to fight off the many, many threats that we have.
1: Uh, yeah, Mr. Secretary, I think you you framed it really well. That I mean, DOD only surpri- survives uh, as an agency out there, or our forces only survive in the fight when we have the equipment that we need to, to do the job, and that has to be built by civilian contractors. So if you're a foreign espionage uh, agency, you don't necessarily need to penetrate the high-security DOD industries. If you can get inside the defense industry side, uh, get into get into their industrial secrets, you can reverse-engineer those things, and the Chinese have uh, clearly been working on that pretty, uh, pretty industriously uh, the last 15 years or so. Uh, Mr. Secretary, we have to just take a, a very short break for about uh, 45 seconds as we uh, recognize our sponsor, the Cybersecurity Summit. Uh, please stand by.
0: Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at Cybersecurity Summit All
1: right, Mr. Secretary, uh, how are new technologies disrupting or otherwise impacting the work being done across the intelligence community and and certainly inside DOD intelligence?
2: Yeah, uh, another great question. So we live off of intelligence um, uh, developments and technologies that are out there, if you will. Um, There are so many devices that have entered the environment over the last two decades. Decades. I mean, just think about, uh, John, when you were in the military and what mobile phones were some 20 years ago and 30 years ago. Right. There were these things that were um, a foot long, if you will. And they had an antenna that was two feet longer than that. And that was a mobile device. It didn't have a camera on it. It didn't have any of those things. Right. It was just this thing that you pulled or if you had a mobile phone in your car. The first mobile phone that I had in my car was in a bag. It had a battery with it. And, uh, you know, it didn't have a crank uh, like an Thing, but it wasn't far beyond that. Well, today you have all of these technologies that are out there that um, allow us to not only um, understand what's in our environment almost instantaneously, but also to transmit that to individuals instantaneously. And, I, and we see that playing out in places like the Ukraine, where people say, well, hey, how do we know what's going on in Ukraine? There's people in Ukraine with mobile phones and they're taking pictures of things and they're sending those out and we're the beneficiaries of those now we have other means that we use too but look um, technology has been uh what i would call disruptive but in a very positive way it has given us tools it has given us advances that have really enabled us to move forward in terms of the uh the art of intelligence and the art of security the challenge that we have john is that everything that we use as a, a tool that enables us to gather more information, it also can be used against us. Mm. So we worry about devices that are being brought in with Bluetooth and those types of things because they can be used as transmitters to get things out. The one last thing let me touch upon real quickly also are the great advances that are being made in things like um, artificial intelligence and machine learning. I mean, just phenomenal uh, developments where the compute power that's being put into devices today, the amount of analytical Uh, intel that we can pack into a device that will help us augment the individuals that we have, help us just work through uh, equations, help us work through data. And you hear about big data and these things. It's real. It really is real. Uh, Those things are going to be cutting edge. They already are making a difference, but they're going to be cutting edge as we try to identify things in our environment, try to make sense of data that's out there as we try to understand where the world is going.
1: I have to imagine that that uh, that machine learning piece, we, we refer to it as artificial intelligence, but it's really advances in machine learning. Uh, we haven't quite gotten to the artificial intelligence piece, but that has to have a, a tremendous impact on the ability of our intel professionals uh, to absorb huge amounts of information and to make sense of it in a much shorter period of time.
2: Sure. When I was a Russian linguist, you know, I, I would... I would get these stacks of information that were literally about a foot deep. And, and what I'd have to do is go sheet by sheet to understand what was in there. And sometimes I had to uh, you know type it in, we called it fat fingering back then. But you know, here I was sifting through large amounts of information to find that, that one nugget that I could then pull out and then report to uh, uh, someone about events or, or activities that were ongoing. Well, with the advances of, of what we've been able to do is to take data and not only program in the things that we're looking for, but then to ask our programs to help us find things that we wouldn't even thought to look for, right? So it's not just doing what a human can do faster, it's approaching it in a different way to where you are actually using that intelligence to enable you to conceptualize things that you wouldn't even have had uh, the wherewithal to ask the question to uh, today. So you would say, okay, the data is also drawing inferences and the data is also drawing connections between things that I wouldn't have even thought about to even ask. When you look at that, that's enabling us to do decision making. That's enabling us to provide options to our policymakers that they wouldn't have had previously ever uh, uh, before. It's also enabling us to make decisions about um people and the, the things that we should do to help our people, the types of tools that we should bring in that will enable them to spend less time on some of the training things, the onerous training things that we've had to have done in the past and focus on those things that look these are the things that only a person can do a machine can't do these things yet so it's enabling us there. there are other things I just had to touch on this because I'd be remiss if I didn't that are coming down the pipe and and hopefully you'll have somebody talk about this on a future show where I can come back and talk to you about it with maybe the director of NSA quantum computing yes Uh, Yes. quantum computing is something that doesn't get a lot of play today I don't think it will change the world when it finally does come about because it'll be a way of looking at things in such a way and when we, we talk about encrypted devices and you know that's part of this disruptive technology or the applications that we're using today that provide end to end encryption, quantum computing is gonna turn some of it some of this on its head. Uh, and we have to be prepared for that too. So when you add the things we talked about already, quantum computing and, and you know things like drone technology it's changing the face and the surface of Intel and what we're able to do and where we're able to do it. And I would say that applies to all domains. Yeah.
1: Uh, for DOD intelligence, counterintelligence and security, what role do partnerships with the private sector or academia play? How vital are those partnerships to American national security interests?
2: Yeah. You know, one of the things that I told the secretary, sir, was that, um, One of the uh, top priorities that uh, I needed to have was figuring out how to operationalize partnerships that we have and and relationships that we have. Now, let me unpack that just a little bit for you. When I talk about operationalizing, so we have these partnerships and relationships that we've had with some of our partners. I'm talking international now, uh, where we meet on a regular basis, great meetings, great discussions, um, uh, but we weren't doing what I would call enough operational work to really solve problems. And what we would do sometimes is we would wait until a problem occurred and then we would have these um, Herculean efforts to pull people together to figure out what do we need to do about it. What we started to do over the past uh, year, year and a half was really look at how do we take the relationships that we have uh, and then turn those into more uh, outcome focused relationships. So focusing on those things that will enable us to support our alliances that we have around the world but also that will enable us to support the joint work that we are doing and the work that we're doing within our countries themselves so that's really critical we've done a great job on that that's playing it's playing out today in ukraine it's played it played out in afghanistan when we uh helped move uh hundred thousand people plus out of afghanistan last year um and it's playing out as we get prepared for uh potential contingencies that we are looking at over the next five to uh, the 10 years, if you will. We also have these partnerships and alliances with industry. Uh, We could not, as we talked about earlier, John, we could not do without the partnerships and relationships we have with industry. And they jump in. When they understand that there's a need, they jump in. And so we try to have relationships with them that I call are non-transactional. So instead of me writing a bill of sale and saying, Uh, I need you to provide me with this. I need to talk to them about what my challenges are, what my problems are, and then have them think of solutions. Instead of me saying, I need you to go build this widget for me, what I want to do is have a discussion with them that says, I got a problem today. How would you solve that problem? So we're trying to do that. And then lastly, with academia, Um, we just have a fantastic relationship with academia that starts really uh, K through 12, uh, continues into the, um, the college and university level, if you will, and then- into the post-university uh, stage where we have them working on problems and issues that are just important. We have these um, relationships with various colleges where they serve as these research centers to help us explore things. So all those partnerships and are absolutely critical. We could not do our work without them. They're a force multiplier for defense and are a force multiplier for
1: security. So uh, o- over the past couple of days, uh, de- decades, excuse me, uh, America has been partnered with uh, our allies and, and other friendly nations in what are f- commonly referred to as coalition operations. Uh, those coalition operations, uh, obviously, we have to share intelligence with each other to make sure that we can execute those operations effectively. In in your role as the Undersecretary of Defense for Intel and Security, how much time do you spend conversing with our allies and, and friends around the world, and how important do, are these intelligence relationships that we have with other other democratic countries around the world?
2: Yeah, this is absolutely essential, John. You know, you, you keep asking these great questions. Um, if you think about um, intelligence relationships, the way I like to think about them is um, neighborhoods um, around uh, around a community, if you will, or neighborhoods that we have um, around the state you know your neighborhood pretty well. I, I think you would know who lives next door. You would know who lives across the street. You know what people do, what they don't do. You know how people talk and all these other things. Well, if you think about uh, Intel relationships, we like to look at those as kind of those uh, community relationships we need to have. So we work very closely with what we call Five Eyes partners. So if you think about um, the Commonwealth nations, the Australians, New Zealanders, Canadians, um, and the uh, the British those organizations understand their geographical part of the world, if you will. We also have to do that with other nations in the indo region, in, the, in Europe, in the Middle East, and in, 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 in Southcom, if you will, or Central America, because they understand what's happening in their regions better than we do. They speak the language, they understand the culture. And so we, have, we spend a lot of time, uh, and I call it an investment of time, not an expenditure of time, Working with those partners and with those nations on challenges that they're seeing, things that we're seeing, uh, helping them make sense of what they're seeing, getting them the tools, uh, and many times them providing us with the tools and their insights as to what they're seeing. And what we try to do is take that then and say, how do we jointly protect our our equities? How do we jointly protect our forces? How do we jointly protect? uh our equities in these various places and it works extremely well i spend a lot of time on it i i hosted uh several of my counterparts last week we call these chiefs of defense intelligence i had meetings with two of them here in washington last week and then had an affair at one of the embassies uh last week where we spent time with the ambassador and their chief of defense and their chief of their uh military uh celebrating a relationship that we have and so those things happen all the time. We could not do the work that we do without our key partners and allies.
1: So with regard to partnerships, uh, I, I think that maybe the greatest long-term challenge that the world faces today, frankly, it, it's climate change. Uh, mm-hmm. We're already seeing disruptions to the global economy, especially in agriculture, uh, from weather, changing weather patterns and whatnot, uh, intensity of storms, droughts. Uh, Lots of impacts from climate change uh, coming. Sea level rise is something that we are already facing on some of the Navy bases. Uh, How how does climate change impact DOD intelligence activities today? And and where do you see things headed in the next 25 years?
2: Yeah, I I think that um, climate change already um, is a priority among defense intelligence uh, among the Defense Intelligence Enterprise and also with our partners and allies, uh, because they're seeing it in some uh, areas, even faster than we are, some of our partners and allies who live in the Arctic, uh, up in the Arctic areas in the Northern latitudes, if you will, are seeing it today. And, um, and even our adversaries we think are uh, experiencing it. It's important for all the reasons that you uh, have already stated, sir. So when you start thinking about bases and installations, just look at some of the storms that have hit us in the southern uh, areas of the United States, some of the storms that hit hit Florida. Well, we have a lot of bases in Florida. We have Naval bases in Florida. We have uh, Air Force bases in Florida. Some of those uh, bases have been in the direct path of category four, category five storms. It takes years, years to rebuild uh, a base or an installation, if you will. You, you talked about the, uh, the the sea rise, if you will. Sea rise is important for a number of different reasons. Some of those being, um, you know, things that we're concerned about uh, in terms of um, where we have people, where we have bases and installations. But some of it being from a national security perspective and what we start to see with population migration. And when you start looking at drought, so we um, we we hear about the changing weather patterns around the world and we see weather patterns changing in the United States where we've had severe drought in parts of the uh, the Western uh, half of our country, if you will. That's occurring around the world where you have severe droughts. And so you have waterways that are drying up. Water is a source. It is the source um, of the water that people drink, water that people use to transport goods, if you will. And so you have population migration because of that. And you start to see uh, potential boundaries being drawn and skirmishes that pop up where people want to fight over um arid versus non-arid areas, right, where people want to fight over places where there is water, non-water, if you will. And so it's it's a major issue that we're going to see as crops begin to uh, be affected, if you will, where the countries want to uh, plant, where are they able to plant, what are they going to do in terms of trade if there are things that they can't get from one country or we can't get from one country, how does that affect trade relationships with others? And how does that affect national security? So all these different things are a part of climate change. I I, 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 I think this is another area where there should be considerable time in the future with your audience spent on this because I think some of the things that we see here are just a microcosm of what we're seeing around the world play out in uh, in terms of climate change. It's going to be, it is, but it's going to be a growing area where not only defense intelligence, but also for national intelligence and the director of national intelligence has already made this a priority of things that we need to look at. And uh, we're formulating a, an approach to it to figure out what we need to do to ensure that uh, that we understand it and give our policymakers the, um, the insights that they need so they can make decisions that hopefully help us uh, have a sustainable world, not just in the next um, 20 years or 30 years, but also over the next 100 years, if you will.
1: Yeah, and I'll, I'll actually have uh, kind of a world, world-renowned world uh, oceanographer, uh, John Englander, will be joining me yeah. on the show yeah. next week. Uh, I know he's been up and talked to a lot of the defense establishment folks in Washington, D.C., about uh, imminent sea level rise based on uh, the warming oceans and the melting of the glaciers on land. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is the Honorable Mr. Ronald Moultrie, who serves as the Under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security. Our show is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. To learn more, visit www.cybersecuritysummit.org. All right, Secretary Moultrie, uh, we've, America faces two very s- challenging strategic competitors uh, today, China and Russia. I would be remiss in my duties as the host of this show if I didn't ask you about the geostrategic challenge our nation faces with regard to both countries. And I'd like to go ahead and start with Russia, because that's uh, really the uh, the one that's uh, on the front plate right now. Uh, How do you see the situation in Russia unfolding? What what can we expect from Putin and the Russian government if and when, frankly, Ukrainian forces uh, eject the Russians from from their territory?
2: Yeah, uh, you know, this is uh, something that we've all been living with, some of us in the uh, defense intelligence and security enterprise for the past year, for a little bit over a year now, uh, because the United States, um, with a number of key partners and allies, was uh, predicting that this might happen. Uh, you know, we were trying to feed in the diplomatic efforts to prevent it from happening. And, and of course, February of this year, February 24th, we saw it kick off and it's unfortunate. Um, it's difficult to predict. I mean, I, I w- wish I had that crystal ball that would say, hey, this is what's going to happen and this is what we um, need to do to um, to really foresee uh, where the situation in Ukraine might go. What we have seen, and I think part of this has been uh, eye-opening for all of us, is a, um, a determined population in terms of the Ukrainian people fight for their homeland and fight for their freedom and fight for their security. And, and what we've tried to do is support uh, the efforts of uh, nations that, um, that want to protect their borders and, and, and want to ensure that there is uh, no military incursions, that would impact their way of life. Putin, you know, I, I, you know, we talked about me being a Russian linguist, so I, I've spent some time over my forty-plus years, and uh, it's been this business just looking at Russia and understanding uh, Russia and understanding uh, the mindset that the Russians have had that um, that go back from, you know, Catherine the Great and uh, the Mongol invasion and all those things that have happened, right? Uh, that have probably in, instilled some degree of paranoia uh, about the Russian borders and, and what they are facing on the borders. Uh, I think what our diplomats have tried to do is uh, reassure Russia that um, you know we are not an aggressive nation, NATO is not an aggressive pact, if you will, but that still has not dissuaded uh, Putin from acting in this space. In terms of uh, what might happen on the battlefield, I'll be quite honest with you. Um, I'm not sure there's going to be a military victory by either side. I, I think that, um, one, you you will never, and never is probably a bad word, but I think it'll be very, very difficult to get the Ukrainians to just capitulate, lay down their arms, and say, okay, we give up. They're too proud of a people to do that. The Russians are also a very determined people, and... Um, I think we have to be careful not to um, not to misinterpret um, what might be a regrouping for a retreat. So one of the things that I get paid to do, uh, one of the things that keeps me up at night is to think about, okay, what is something, um, what's actually occurring and what might that actually be a prelude for? And so the retreat that the Russians are doing um, we got to make sure that it is not just a regrouping and they're a learning country. And a lot of the, the um, nations that are out there today, including the United States, are learning countries. You see what, uh, what's happening and you learn from it. Um, I think our best hope is in the diplomatic effort right now. I, I do think long-term that um, uh, allowing our, our, our international community to, uh, to work through this issue and to try to resolve this issue is where we uh, we placed our hopes. I think from an intel perspective, um, we have to continue to do the work that we've done. I think we've done stellar work in this regard. I don't think that some of that work will ever be known, or it will take decades to be known. You know, it will come out in some books some 40 or 50 years from now, just as we're finding out things that happened in World War II. As to what the Defense Intelligence and, and Security Enterprise's true role was in all of this, we have to continue to do that. Uh, uh, I think that we... Um, we played a pivotal role here and we can continue to play a pivotal role in other places. But I think um, that our best and uh, you know, our, 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 best opportunity to um, see a, um, a resolution to this will be with the international community with our diplomats and the, the efforts that they have ongoing right now.
1: Uh, two, two quick comments. If I, if I may, uh, Mr. Secretary, first of all, you alluded to it, uh, the amount of intelligence that uh, was being provided to our diplomats. Uh, But I would say that uh, the the thing that struck me the most in the run-up to the Russians uh, carrying out this invasion, it was pretty clear to me, I I think probably to you too, there was no way that Putin was going to back down. He had moved all those forces to the border. He was coming. But what I thought was really fascinating was the willingness on the part of the administration to really uh, reveal so much intelligence that we knew about what the Russians were planning to do and how they were going to do it. Uh, that it really took away the the facade that Putin was trying to offer. I thought that was a very unique and aggressive approach, a really enlightening approach uh, as far as the role that intelligence plays in helping diplomats uh, try to secure peace whenever it's possible.
2: Yeah, I would say that uh, it was probably countercultural to That's right. <laughs> uh, what <laughs> yes. a lot of us uh, grew up with, right? Yeah, yeah. So our whole thing is, you know, we have the big secret. We want to protect that secret as much as possible. Uh, But in this instance, uh, the right decision was made. Our White House, our president said, uh, this is important enough to do. Uh, We are going to release this information. And uh, we found a way of uh, releasing it in such a way that we still protect the sources and methods, but got that information out there. And I I think, John, to your point, it's been decisive. I I think the international community and what they've learned and being able to counter uh, some of the nefarious planning that that we were seeing unfold, has been absolutely astro, absolutely instrumental in uh, turning the tide on this. And so the key for us is not for defense intelligence, because I, I don't think this is, a, this is the last conflict that we're ever going to see around the world, right? Yeah. So I always <laughs> tell people that this is not the last war we are going to fight. This right. is not the last conflict. This is not the last, you pick it. Um, the key for us is to not slip back. How do we open up more of a dialogue with the American people? How do we open up more of a dialogue with the world? And that's why I like shows like this. I think it's great because it gives us an opportunity to come out of the shadows and to actually appear on a, on a program where we can talk about the things that we've done and why we do it and how it's making a difference. And, and you have people who um, I think... Um, should be a part of it. And so for me, it's just great. that uh, it's my recruiting pitch. Uh, <laughs> while I'm to say, hey, um, you know, we should continue to do this. We should continue to have this dialogue and we need more people to be a part of what we're doing here. But yeah, it's a great point, John. I'm glad you made that point.
1: And my and my second follow up point on the Russia-Ukraine situation is we have seen sort of a, uh, you you mentioned the determination on the part of the Ukrainian people, but I, I would tell you that what's really surprised me is the, the lethality that we have seen on the part of small, uh, highly maneuverable Ukrainian units operating high-technology uh, systems like, uh, like the Javelin anti-tank missile and their mobility, and being able to incorporate uh, almost commercial off-the-shelf uh, technologies, like you talked about, cell phones, and, and the ability to, to transfer information uh, via these means so effectively and become so lethal against a Russian force that's significantly outnumbered them in, in equipment and manpower. Uh, I mean, are we learning these important lessons for, for DOD from what's happening in, in the Ukraine? war? Yeah.
2: So, John, this takes us back to the beginning of our discussion. When we talked about J-2s and integrated intel, right, and how we integrate with them and they integrate with us. Remember the old World War II movies where you'd have people in a briefing room and they get briefed on the intel and then they would go out. And whatever happened on the battlefield, well, that's what happened because there was no way you, you had flown your reconnaissance aircraft over. You had a picture of what was going to happen. And then you had your briefing in the um, in the briefing room, conference room, and then you went out into the environment. That's not where we are today. Today, it's real time, integrated communications and intelligence that says basically understand if you turn this way, you're going to see this. If you turn that way, you're going to see that. When we talk about sensors in the environment and getting information from sensors and we talk about NGA, well, one of the things we want to know is can we find those sensors? And those sensors are our sensors so we can protect our people, but also they're the adversary sensors. So we can say that sensor is in that coordinate or that location, right? And so when you talk about, John, the lethality of the equipment that we put out there, when you combine the intelligence that we have today and our real-time ability to integrate that intelligence into the decision-making of a battlefield commander, that is a very powerful punch that we're able to deliver for our nation, and I think that's what's played out today. And I think that's you know the um, that's the 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 landscape that we're going to be facing in the future is a an integrated battlefield where intel is integrated into all that we do, and um, you know hope what we do is um, deter uh, aggression by saying. These wars that were winnable in the past become less winnable in the future unless you escalate to some area that we know that no one wants to escalate to. And so let's find a way to peacefully uh, resolve our differences. Let's find a way of peacefully talking about issues. And let's not have to resort to us having to bring about that lethality or those integrated operations. But our job in defense intelligence is to be prepared so that if the secretary of defense ever looks at us and says, What do we have ready to go? What can we do? What we can say is, sir or ma'am, here's what we're able to do. This is when we'll be able to do it. And this is what you need to know to have that decision and information advantage as to whether or not you want to recommend to the president that we take a step or whether or not you recommend to the president that we hold and do something else. So that's the power of what we talked about here. And that really, you know, you're helping to tie up a lot of the things, sir, that we talked about during this discussion today. So very, very helpful to look at it that way.
1: Uh, so, Mr. Secretary, I, I know that your schedule is is tight. We're closing in at the end of the hour. I wanted to ask you about China, but I want to be respectful of your of your time available. Do you have? Do you still have? Okay, you just still still have time. Okay, so China, <laughs> so China, so uh, China. Some of our senior uniformed military officers, uh, most of them are now retired, but uh, and many of the think tanks in the Washington D.C. area are warning that uh, China may attempt to seize uh, part or all of Taiwan by force. Uh, we keep hearing about this year, 2027, as being sort of a critical year from Xi Jinping's uh, perspective. Uh, challenges to freedom of navigation in and around Taiwan, maybe even the South China Sea. We see challenges from China in the way of advanced weapons systems or AI-enabled cyber. Uh, from your perspective as the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security, uh, what concerns you most about the uh, U.S. and China going head to head over an international crisis? Obviously, deterrence is the best uh, option. Uh, you just uh, really framed that great, really, re- really well. But but we face uh, a, a near peer competitor in China. Uh, what keeps you up at night about China?
2: Yeah, John. Uh, you know, I'm glad you asked this question because you hear a lot about it, and there are a lot of um think tanks, as you said, they're out there, and pundits who are talking about this on a daily basis. Look, if you look at what's happening in Ukraine, well, let me start with what I said during my confirmation hearing. I think this is really important. I don't believe that uh, a conflict between the U.S. and China is inevitable. I do not believe that. Uh, I don't believe that it's in the best interest of either nation to get into a military conflict. If you look at what's happening in Russia um, uh, or happening in Ukraine with the Russian-Ukraine conflict, um, take the carnage that's happened there and multiply that, you know, exponentially. I think that's what you have, if the uh, if the the, the the Chinese people and the American people or allies um, end up getting into a a conflict. So I think what we want to be able to do is to understand exactly uh, where some of the um, some of the Chinese thinking is in terms of what they're driving towards. You mentioned 2027. That's the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party. So we know that's a that's a date that, that's been out there, that they want to be ready to do certain things by the 100th anniversary of the party. So we track that very carefully in terms of, you know, what their intent is and what they are saying. They just recently had a party congress, if you will, that we, um, that we paid attention to, if you will. Uh, but we also want to ensure that we understand where they're going militarily, uh, not so much that we are ready to um, to uh, engage in a war, but what we want to be able to have with our partners and allies, and this is where we rely very, very, very heavily on our um, on our partners in the Indo-PACOM region, is to have what we call an integrated deterrence, to say, you know, it's not just about the, the United States if the Chinese were um, to take some aggressive action against the nation uh, in the Indo-PACOM region, They would be meeting a number of countries just as the russians are finding that uh, in ukraine it wasn't just the ukrainians that they were facing they were facing all of nato and all of the uh, equipment all of the resourcefulness all of the diplomatic economic and military support and uh, pressure that can be brought to bear by nato um, any i think future world conflict will have to be seen through the lens of what happened with russia ukraine And we would bring that same economic, diplomatic, uh, military pressure to bear, and uh, we hope to avoid that. So um, I think the best way to to win a conflict is to avoid it in the first place. Defense intelligence uh, has a key role in doing that, and uh, that's my job, is to uh, prepare for that day with the intel that we need so that if we have to – uh, engage in some type of activity that we have that information and decision advantage, but also more importantly, provide that deterrent information that can give our policymakers and our leaders the information that where they can avoid us getting into a conflict or getting into a, uh, a situation that will be hard to, uh, deescalate. Uh,
1: Mr. Secretary, we, we have run over time, uh, but I, I really appreciate your thoughts today. Uh, what, what final comments do you have for our listeners on, uh, on your role as the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security, may- maybe just talk a little bit about the people who serve our country uh, in the DoD intelligence and counterintelligence and security enterprise.
2: Yeah, I would say that uh, what people need to see when they look at all of us is that we're, we're just we're American citizens, just like you are, right? There is no difference uh, between us. I grew up in a family of seven. Uh, my father was an enlisted man, uh, so um, you know we didn't come from. Uh, a lot of money or anything like that and what you see is that we represent america and we are doing our best to represent america in terms of the people that we bring in for you and the program that you have here i i really can't say enough uh, in terms of thank you for hosting it and putting it on it shows that you have a listenership that is interested in these issues and that's the most important thing is to be an informed listener uh because you're the ones who provide that support you're the individuals who, who encourage other individuals to be a part of what we do. So I would say thank you and thank the listeners for uh, just being interested in these topics because I think they're really important. And, and when I eventually transition out of this job and go back to being just a, you know, a, a regular member of the public, enjoying myself and enjoying my, uh, my ball games and, uh, and those types of things, I'm going to hope that some of the listeners that you have on your program will be here and they'll be serving in these capacities, because we need that to happen. So I think that's really important. The other piece that I would say is that, um, you know, just thank the people who serve in these uh, in these jobs. They are um, they're very long hours. The, um, you know, the pay is not among the top that uh, one could probably get in Silicon Valley or other places, if you will. But the work is very rewarding. And for people who want uh, an opportunity to travel and see the world, they gets back to the first thing I said, why did I join? I wanted to engage with the world. Uh, I've been to so many places. I've been um, uh, able to um, really enjoy so many other different cultures and really have an understanding of what goes around the world because of the opportunity that I was afforded here. So it's been a blessing for me to be a part of this for some 43 years, if you will. And uh, I hope we can continue to be a blessing for our nation. And I, I wanna thank people like you uh, Mr. Olson, for all that you've done in terms of your service to the nation and what you are doing today. You are still serving, and I hope <laughs> you still see yourself as serving. And uh, and we owe you a debt of gratitude for what you're doing there. So thank you, listeners.
1: Thank you. And, and God bless you all. I appreciate that, sir. Uh, unfortunately, we've come to the end of this edition of National Security This Week. Under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security, the Honorable Mr. Ronald Moultrie, uh, thank you so much for taking time from your busy calendar today to join us this morning, sir. It's It has truly been an honor.
2: Honor is all mine. Take care. God bless you.
1: And that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to our show. I'd like to thank our sponsor, the team at the Cybersecurity Summit, for helping us to produce this weekly show. You can learn more about the Cybersecurity Summit at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care.
0: You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues that affect American national security. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, which is meeting this year from October 24th to the 27th at the Doubletree Hotel in Bloomington.